0: Good morning. The reason uh, Jacob was highlighting the fact that I'll be up praying, uh, some of you may be like, you know, why is he saying Jace will be, and you can have a long line to Jace, like I'm the Pope who has like special blessings or something. Like, yeah. It's actually because Bert's out sick and Merrick and Jacob are abandoning me for a wedding and so I will be the lone man standing is really what he was trying to get at, but I will be happy to pray for each of you. A lot of prayer requests, that's right. Although, hopefully, I can get Seth to join me as well. All right, um, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, as we draw nearer to Christmas, what we're going to do is take this Sunday and the next to take a closer look at two prophecies concerning the birth of Christ. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. and a number of them have to do with his birth. But we're going to look at two of them, only two of them, both of these from the prophet Isaiah. So this week week we will look at the promise of a sign given, uh, which is uh, the title of our message as well. A sign is given, a sign is given that the Messiah would be born. That sign is that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And then next week we're going to look at the promise of, of a son given, a son is given. So two promises of God foretold by the prophet Isaiah, and let us remember that all the promises of God, all the ones that we are addressing today, next week, and always as we preach the word of God, all these promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, which is to say at Christmas, all of them come wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Everything in scripture comes to this. It comes to the incarnation of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to this, and in one sense, in a real sense, everything after, everything in the Gospels after this, uh, everything in the Epistles, everything flows from the incarnation. Without the incarnation, nothing else is possible. Without the incarnation, nothing else is possible. Jesus Christ was born, he was born to die, but he was born God-man. Born to die so that we might live. Jesus became a man to be our salvation, to be our Savior, but to be our Savior, He had to be born, He had to come in a certain way. To be our Savior, Jesus had to come, He had to become a man in a certain way. He had to be virgin born. But why? But Why? Why did he have to be virgin born? Why couldn't have God done some other why couldn't he thought of some other way to bring the savior into the world? Why did why have all the ways that he could have done it? Why did God commit himself through prophecy? Why did he commit himself to doing it this way? Why a virgin birth? Why is that important? Why does that matter? Or does it? Is it is it merely just this cool thing God could do? You know, like, God was like, hey, look what I can do. A virgin giving birth. And we all say, wow. We would say, you know, it is that. We should say, wow, God can do that. That is powerful. But is that all it is? Is it just a random miracle? Or is there design in it? Or is, this a, is there something more to his wise saving plan? preview. Yes, there is. That's where we're going today. So, that's what we're going to dig deeper into today. Our text is Isaiah chapter 7. We're looking at verses 10 through 17. I hope you have your copy of of Holy Scripture open and can follow along with us. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. These are the words of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, it's Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, or for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. So we begin with the prophecy of Isaiah, but I would like us to now fast forward. Let's fast forward to Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Matthew's account of Jesus. This is the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. There were told that when Joseph discovered Mary was with child, when he found out she was with child, he drew the natural and the obvious conclusion, which was that Mary must not be a virgin. Joseph concluded, the obvious natural conclusion, well, she must not be a virgin. Uh, she must have been unfaithful to him because he knew that he wasn't the father. He knew he wasn't the father, and he also knew... Somebody else had to be. He knew he wasn't the father and he knew somebody else had to be. And in this, Joseph was right and wrong. Right? He was right, but he was bringing a wrong conclusion in there. Uh, because he knew he knew he wasn't the father. That was right. He knew somebody else had to be. That was right. But who that somebody else was, was not who he thought it was. So that he's wrong. Right? But, being a righteous man, Matthew says, being a, being a just man, Joseph resolved to put her away quietly. He resolved to divorce Mary, but to do so quietly so as to not put her to shame. He didn't want to humiliate her. And yet, what happened is, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and told him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be, don't worry, don't be worried about this. Don't be afraid to do this because, this is Matthew one twenty. that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. That's how this this came about, Joseph. It's by the Holy Spirit, not some other man. Likewise, in Luke, uh, in Luke's gospel, an angel appeared to Mary. So one appears to Joseph, one appears to Mary, telling her she would conceive in her womb and bear a son. And she asked, "How can that be? How's that possible when I am a virgin? How can that be when I am a virgin?" And the Greek word here is Parthenos, which is really important. It's, it's said twice in Luke that she is a virgin, Parthenos. I am, I am Parthenos. That's important. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down because we're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. It's an important word in the doctrine of the virgin birth. So she says, hey, I'm Parthenos. I'm virgin. So how can this happen? And he answered her, Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, Mary was a virgin. She was a Parthenos. But she would conceive and bear a son, one who would be called Holy. And he would be the Son of God. So, who was his father? Like... This is not a hard one. So who was Jesus' father? Good. For all our guests, I, you know, I'm a little embarrassed by my congregation. They actually do know the answer to that question. Um, they're just very polite. Yes, God is the Father. God would be the Father, and all of this would come about by the Holy Spirit. We're told again and again. Mary is told Holy Spirit would do this. Joseph is told Holy Spirit would do this. And in both passages, the angel says that the child's name will be Jesus because he will save them from their sins. So his name is going to be Jesus. He is going to be holy. It means he's going to be without sin. He'll be sinless. He will be the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And all of this... All of that, that, that whole you know, package deal for Christmas, that whole Christmas present, the angel tells Joseph, takes place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What did he say? Behold, this is what the angel is quoting from the prophet now, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So this is the prophecy that's found in our text, found in Isaiah 7 verse 14, but it's foretold, it was told of Jesus, it was announced afresh by the angel, hey, you know, remember this one, recall this one, but it was originally told by Isaiah 700 years prior. 700 years before Jesus. So let's go back now, now we looked at that, now let's go back to Isaiah, okay? Let's go back to our text, and the context of our text is this. But at this point in time, in Isaiah's day, Israel has split into two kingdoms. All right? It, not like this, really. Actually, it was more like this. A northern and a southern kingdom. They split into two kingdoms. The, the, Israel and the, nor- the northern kingdom was called Israel, also called Ephraim. So in verse 14, it's called Ephraim. Two names, Israel, Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom was Judah. Okay, Israel slash Ephraim, and then down in the south is Judah. And what's happening? What's happening in the, in the the few verses before our passage is Israel, northern kingdom, has joined forces with the kingdom of Syria. They joined forces with the kingdom of Syria in an alliance against Assyria. Okay, so this is why this is where this is why we didn't read all those verses because this is where it gets really. Con- we have a kingdom named Israel, who is actually two kingdoms: a northern kingdom israel which is also called ephraim and it's in an alliance with syria who's against us syria like why can't we not like could we just not call them like you know nebraska and nevada or something? so they're like very distinctly different or something you know those still had ends you know nevada and wyoming or so you're like why are they syria and Assyria syria i don't know it gets all confusing you need maps and and charts and all that to, to keep this straight i'm trying my best so To strengthen, so Israel and Assyria, they're in this alliance, and to strengthen their alliance, to be stronger against Assyria, which is a superpower, they want to get Judah, the southern kingdom, to join them. They want Judah to join them, and so the way they go about doing that is they attack Jerusalem. They come against Jerusalem, they say, let's sack Jerusalem, and force the southern kingdom, all their men, to join us in an alliance against Assyria. So they attack Jerusalem. This is the background to our passage. And, and you can read about this in verse 1 of chapter seven, Isaiah 7. Uh, they come against Jerusalem when Ahaz, okay, he was in our passage, right? Ahaz was king of Judah. He was king of southern kingdom. He was king in Jerusalem. And verse 1 tells us that even though they, they came against the city, they couldn't take the city. They couldn't prevail against its defenses. And yet, the the heart of the king, the heart of Ahaz, and the people were badly shaken. Okay, so if you got your Bible, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2, Isaiah 7, 2. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people, this is a is key, key phrase here, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Right, so like in a tempest. So even though the city has not fallen, even though they have not surrendered, these are not valiant defenders. These are not courageous and strong and mighty men They've all but given up is what's going on. They're convinced they're not going to make it. And so they're shaking in their boots. But God in his kindness sends the prophet Isaiah to give them a word of comfort. To give them a word, you know, we might say tidings of comfort and joy. Isaiah comes with tidings of comfort and joy. And this is in verses 3 through 9. God sends Isaiah to encourage the king and to encourage the people. And he tells them that very soon, within a short amount of time, the powers that they're so worried about, Israel and the northern kingdom and Syria attacking Jerusalem, those powers are going to be no more. Very soon they're going to be no more. They're going to be out of the picture. You don't have to worry about them. So he says, you don't have to worry about it. They're going to be gone. So if Isaiah were Luther, he would say, those princes of darkness grim, tremble not for them. Their rage you can endure, for lo, their doom is sure. He's saying, don't worry about them. You know, if he were British, he would say, stay calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. You know, Isaiah comes with a prophetic poster. Keep calm and carry on, Jerusalem. You know, Put that up everywhere, all over Jerusalem. Stay calm, keep calm, and carry on. Now, if you look with me at the end of verse 9, I love this line. Isaiah says to Ahaz, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's just such a great sin. If you underline things in your Bible, that is one that you ought to underline. If you are not firm in faith... You will not be firm at all. In first service, we had a bit of a problem where all these spouses were showing, the ones who had it underlined were like showing their spouse like, look, I've already got that one underlined. And the other ones were looking at them very unimpressed. Like, yeah, but you don't live that way. Um, so, you know, because it's one thing to underline it, it's another thing to live by it. But you all weren't doing that. So either none of you have it underlined yet, or you're much godlier than they are. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So uh, we're going to come back to this line in just just a little bit towards the end of the sermon, but a, a, a preview of what's to come. Faith in God, faith in God is the only thing that can stabilize you through trial. Faith in God. Listen, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when temptations toss you to and fro, Faith in God and faith in His Word is the only thing that can anchor your life, stabilize your life. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Faith has a stabilizing power. And so we want to look at that in a little bit. We'll come back to it. But continuing on now in our passage, sadly, Ahaz does not heed that warning. He's not a man of faith. He does not trust the word of God. He doesn't believe the promise that those powers he's worried about are going to be gone soon. But but instead of forsaking Ahaz for his unbelief, instead of forsaking Ahaz, God comes to him and offers him a sign. He graciously offers him a sign to strengthen his faith. Something to hang his faith upon. A sure sign to convince him. And this brings us to verse 10, where we picked up. So you can look at it again. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, death, or high as heaven. Ask. So he's saying, ask any sign you want, Ahaz. Ask me, ask me anything. You want me, to, you want me to make the sun stand still? Just ask me. Ask me anything you want. Ask me anything you want, Ahaz. But Ahaz won't do it. Ahaz he won't do it. Uh, He he says, "I'm, I'm not gonna do that. And so God says, Well, I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it anyway. And the words of the prophecy that we have are taken from that sign in verses 14 through 17. So, point number one then this morning, having set all that up, point number one is a sure sign. A sure sign and I warned the first service I warned you all as well. In this point, we are going to go deep into the counsel of God. Like we're going to we're going to, you know, put your thinking caps on, take a sip of your coffee, get your pen and pencil ready. I know y'all were dancing last night and and making, you know, fun, not making fun of, but you know, making fun having fun, but now it's time to wake up and think deeply so that then by the second point we can soar high. By the second point we can go way up there in faith, okay? So, here's where we're going. Look again with me at verse 14. Let's get these words in our hearts. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the sign given to Ahaz was that there would be a child born of a virgin. And original language time again. Okay, the Hebrew word translated virgin here is Alma. Okay, Alma. Uh, another important word. If you're a guest, we don't normally do this much original languages, but this is this is this is important for this one. It's a word that can mean virgin, okay, but it can also mean young woman. It can mean virgin or it can mean young woman, right? So that's Alma. If you're taking notes, you want we'll to write that one down because we'll come back to that one too. And so Isaiah says, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: behold, a, a virgin or an Alma, a young woman, maybe, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, in other words, while he's still young, before, before he's grown up, but while he's still a little kid, while he's still a child, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So that's the sign for Ahaz. A young woman, somebody's going to conceive in Ahaz's time. In Ahaz's time. So this was not first a prophecy about Jesus, that he would be born 700 years later. Right, this is not first a prophecy about Jesus being born seven hundred years later. Because what encouragement would that be to Ahaz? Right, what encru- the kings you dread? Don't worry, in seven hundred years they won't exist. <laughs> well, great God, you know neither will I. Right, like it doesn't really strengthen my faith, and so it's not first a prophecy about Jesus. If it was, that would be very encouraging to Ahaz. Now, um, it is first a sign for Ahaz. So the sign is an Alma, a young woman, a virgin, conceiving a child. And it first has to be a, born, a boy born, a boy being born in Ahaz's time. Now, if you look down with me, uh, a few verses, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, right? Chapters 8, verse, this is a little bit further down in this, this prophecy. Isaiah tells us, This is him speaking about himself now. He says, and I went to the prophetess. So he's talking about his wife. I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. See the same language there? She conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, Meher Shahal Which, By the way, all of you out there having lots of kids and want to name their children with Bible names, Here's one for you to try, right? We all like, you know, James, Judah, you know, like all these, you know, Matthew. Did, uh, we're about to have a boy, Jenny. <laughs> what a name. Let's call him Maher for short, okay? Meher. The Lord says, uh, said to me, call his name Maher, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother... The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The two kings you worry about will be gone. So you see the parallel here between this verse and the sign given in chapter 7. In the first instance, the sign was fulfilled in Mahor. Before he he could say mommy, before he could say daddy, when he was still just a little kid... Isaiah is saying, in just a couple of years, these two kings, you're you're worried about, they're going to be dealt with. And that's the sign Ahaz, that's the sign. You're going to see it, it's going to happen. Now you might say, okay, that's fine, I see the parallels here, but his name is Meher, it's not Emmanuel. His name is Meher, and, and his mom was not a virgin, she was just a young woman. So how do we understand this? How do we think about this? Well, this is where we need to understand how prophecy in the Bible often works. This is how it, it you know, we tend to think of it as announcing a, a what and a when, right? A what, Like, like someone's going to call you up and say, you're going to receive, you're going to inherit next year, you're going to inherit a million dollars. You're going to get a million dollars next year. So a prophetic word, a what and a when, right? But in scripture, often prophecy works as kind of like a double feature, having multiple fulfillments right there's a near fulfillment and there's a long term fulfillment we're going to this is good to understand because in Matthew chapter 24 the mount of olives where Jesus teaches about the end times we're going to need to understand this he's going to talk about things that are going to happen you know soon near in the future for him and further in the future and the same thing with revelation when you read that it's talking about things that are happening in the near future and later in the future now, so you see this in the bible in different places like take Acts 2 for instance in Acts 2 Uh, What happens in Acts 2? What's the big thing that happens? Pentecost. Yes, that's right. Pentecost, right? Spirit is poured out. People are speaking in tongues. And everybody's saying, what in the world is going on with these men? And so Peter steps up and says, I can tell you what's going on. Joel the prophet Joel foretold about this right the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and so that your young men would have visions and your old men would see dreams right so this is that this is that outpouring of the Holy Spirit but then he he continues to quote the prophecy and he talks about falling stars from the sky and the moon turning blood red and all these cataclysmic kind of language about the end of the world did that happen that day did any of that happen no, there was a near fulfillment and there was a further fulfillment. Part of Joseph, Joel's prophecy was coming true, but, but not all of it was happening yet. So there was a near fulfillment and there would be a later fulfillment, a fuller fulfillment. Maybe the best analogy I've come across uh, to get this across, the best picture I can give you is, is that of a mountain range, right? Right? I know we have a lot of people who like to go out hiking, um, and you like to go out camping. And so, you know, mountain rangers, think Rocky Mountains, right? So you're driving up to the mountain, you're driving towards the mountains, and off in the distance, you see, like, they, they rise up over the horizon, right? Like, wow, there they are, the Rocky Mountains. And there's, just, there's a, like a wall of mountains that come up, right? You know what I'm talking about? You see all those peaks, there's a wall. But then you drive up into them, you drive up into them, and you get on the other side, and you see, oh, and there's the Rocky Mountains. Right? they they keep going. They, you know, I'm, I saw these peaks. There was a wall of peaks. But I got up here and I saw there's more peaks and there's more peaks. And there's a depth up to them. Right? Right? And so biblical prophecy acts like this, uh, often. There, there, there's a fulfillment. There's something you see. There it is. I see it. But then you get up a little higher into Revelation and you say, oh, it keeps going. There's more. There's more to it. And so that's something of what's happening here. In our text, there's going to be a child born to an Alma, to a young woman, and at first it's Isaiah's son with his wife, though she's not technically a virgin and his name isn't actually Emmanuel. He is only a sign of Emmanuel. He is a sign that God is with Ahaz and God is with Judah. That's the near fulfillment. That's the, that's the sign for Ahaz. And yet, there's more. And yet, there's more. This is, and this is where it gets really interesting. This is where it gets really interesting. I said already that Isaiah ministered 700 years before Jesus, right? 700 years before Christ. What's the Septuagint? Anybody know what the Septuagint is? What's the Septuagint? It's the Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek, right? The Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That was written Two hundred and fifty years. That was translated two hundred and fifty years before Jesus. Alright, so Isaiah's seven centuries before Jesus. The Septuagint is two and a half centuries before Jesus. And in the Septuagint, when they translated Hebrew to Greek, they translated the Hebrew word alma, young woman or virgin, of Isaiah seven fourteen. They translated it into the Greek as Parthenos. Parthenos, which means virgin. Only virgin. Only ever virgin. Not young woman. It must be a virgin. So, two and a half centuries before Jesus... There was an expectation that this prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen had had some kind of fulfillment, a shadow of fulfillment, but not the full fulfillment, not the not the true fulfillment, not that far later fulfillment that they were still expecting. Uh, they expected an actual virgin to conceive of a son who would be called Emmanuel. So there was widespread expectation among the Jews that there that there were aspects of this prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen. that were yet to be fulfilled. The Jews were waiting for a virgin-born Messiah. There was a Jewish doctrine of a virgin birth resulting in God with us. So, the question becomes then, okay, but why a virgin? Why a virgin? God invited Ahaz to pick any sign. Ahaz, pick any sign you want. Right? Like, name your price, Ahaz. Let it be as deep as Sheol, as deep as death, or high as heaven. Pick whatever you want. But Ahaz won't do it. So God God does it for him. God chooses for him, and he chooses the sign of a virgin. He, He commits himself to having to fulfill the sign of a virgin giving birth. Why did he pick a virgin birth? Like of all the things, why did he pick a virgin birth? You might think God was just performing a random miracle so that everybody would know that Jesus was remarkable. And that, you know, that it, we said this earlier, that is kind of true. That, does, that is part of it. It was to showcase Jesus' remarkable identity, but it wasn't random. It wasn't random. That it was a virgin birth is not an incidental point. Our salvation actually depends upon it, right? Jesus was born this way so that he could be holy, so that he could be sinless, all right? So he could be without sin. Luke one thirty five again, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. All right, so this is where Mary is told about how she will conceive. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her or cover her with the result that the child born of her would be holy, sinless, and the Son of God. So Jesus was born of a virgin so that he could be a human being who was truly holy. Truly without sin. And so Jesus was, right? Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so he was born this way to be holy, but here's the question. Why not have a man and a woman get married, and the Holy Spirit act as kind of a mediator, and like block the sin from coming? Why didn't he just purify their union? Why did the Holy Spirit, or why didn't He just infuse, some, you know, why didn't He just bring Jesus into there? Why a virgin must give birth? What is the design of God in this? What is the necessity of a virgin? Virgin. Well, the fact that Jesus was sinless is obviously related to who His Father was, right? Who His fa- God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? So it it obviously deals with who his father was. But we're not talking about the Holy Spirit's part in this. We're talking about how it also relates, his sinlessness also relates to who his father wasn't. To who his father wasn't. Joseph. The other sons of Joseph were sinners in need of forgiveness, just like the rest of us. For example, James. James was the half brother. The apostle James was the half brother of Jesus, right? Jesus or James's mom was Mary, and James's dad was Joseph, which made Jesus his half brother, right? And you wonder what would it be like what would it be like to have Jesus as your half brother? Like, you know, so perfect you hate him, and yet so perfect that you actually you can't find yourself hating him, right? Like, he'd be that like like you're so perfect, I just want to hit you. Um and yet you're so perfect I can't hit you. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it would be like to be his half-brother. But we're told in John's Gospel that James was a sinner. That James was a sinner. One of the sins we know he had was the sin of unbelief. He saw the signs and he did not believe initially. He heard the preaching, but he did not believe initially. So Joseph was the father of a man who became an apostle in the church. He later became a believer in Christ. He became an apostle in the church. He became a pillar in the early church. He was a great man, but he was not a sinless man. And if Jesus had been born of Mary and Joseph, like James had been, then he might have become a great man. He, like James, he may have become an apostle, but he wouldn't have been an apostle. Of it. He wouldn't have. Ha- who would he be apostle of? He wouldn't have. Been, there wouldn't have been a savior. For that, we need a sinless man. For that, we needed one who knew no sin to be made sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From all this, we can deduce. From all this, we can conclude that sin is reckoned to us through the male line. Sin is reckoned to us through, it's imputed to us through the male line. It's imputed to us from generation to generation, from father to son. And, it, and this makes sense if you think about it, as scripture so frequently does. It makes sense if you think about it covenantally. If you think about it covenantally. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, so he was a true human being, but he did not have the sin of Adam imputed to him. He did not have the sin of Adam imputed to him. Romans 5.19 teaches that through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right? Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Let me ask you this question. This is not a trick question. Was Adam the first human to sin? No. Who was the first human to sin? Eve. Eve was the first human to sin. But Eve's sin did not entail the whole human race into sin. Eve's disobedience didn't make us sinners. According to Romans 5.19, Adam's made us sinners. Adam sins it. He was the covenant head, as scripture talks about, of the human race. He represented us and he represented us well so that when he sinned, we all sinned in him. And since Adam, sin has been imputed from generation to generation through the male line. Our participation in Adam's rebellion is passed down covenantally through fathers. Which means, as we can say, as has been suspected for some time now, men really are the problem. Men really are the problem to which all the godly women didn't say amen. Well done. That was a test. That was a test of you ladies. Uh, You didn't say it. You thought it, but you didn't say it. So good job, Uh, because it would have just proven this point. It would have proven my next point, which is that we're not saying that women are exempt from having a corrupt human nature. We're not saying that they're exempt from having to... The Holy Spirit did have to come and do something to make Jesus holy. And we do know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it does mean man's corruption, the guilt of his corruption all that, is transmitted covenantally through the Father. Sin is imputed through the male line... But since Jesus did not have an immediate human father, he was not entailed in sin with the rest of us. Like, who are the only two men, who are the only two humans in all of, all of existence who have ever not had human fathers? Adam and Jesus. Adam and what scripture calls the second Adam and the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47. There are only... You're you're either in Adam or you are in Jesus. Scripture talks about... There are two heads over two races, if you will. Jesus is the covenant head of a new humanity. So he had to not have the guilt of Adam imputed to him. He had to be a new head over a potentially new race. So that just by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, Romans 5.19. This is why Jesus taught that we need to be, we must be born again. We've all been born by Adam. We've all had sin passed to us. But we must be born again, John 3, 1-10, so that we can become children of our Holy Father, children of our Holy God. This was read to us earlier, but we read it again. John 1, 12 and 13. See it afresh. But to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor... Sorry. Yeah, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because Jesus did not have an immediate human father... He was not entailed in sin with the rest of us. He was not entailed with sin with. You know, Augustine tried to figure this out. Augustine tried to work this out, right? You may, you may have heard this before. Augustine tried to work this out. He thought sin went through the Father, but he assumed that meant, you know, on some level he couldn't see yet genetically, that it, it was passed through the seed of a man. It was passed through the seed of a man, and thus Jesus was, was saved. You know, but, but Augustine got it wrong. It's, you know. If I can say Augustine got it wrong. I tremble a little bit in my... But we tested against you. It's not through the seed of the man; it's through the covenant responsibility of men. It's passed down. But Jesus did not have an immediate human father, so he was not entailed with sin like the rest of us are. But he also had a true human mother, so he was human as we are. And from all this, we can see that the virgin birth is not just some random miracle story designed to impress us. It's not wow, that's really cool that God can do that. Wow, you know, wow, that's that's pretty amazing stuff there. No, like the incarnation itself the virgin birth is necessary for our salvation it is it is necessary for the plan the will of God for he designed all this He designed all this, and then he stamped his design into history so that we'd see it all and say, Wow, that is amazing wisdom. Wow, that is a saving God. Wow, that is incredible how God has designed all things to come together in Jesus Christ. This should make us think like Romans 11 calls us to do. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? But from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. This Christmas, as you sing about the virgin birth, be amazed at the plan of God worked out for your salvation. The virgin birth is necessary for the salvation of sinners like you and me, and it is a sure sign intended to strengthen our faith, which leads us to point number two this morning. Point number two, and a shorter point, affirm faith. Affirm faith. In verse 9, the Lord warned King Ahaz... If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. When enemies surround us, when trials threaten to undo us, when temptations beseech us, when we find ourselves traversing through the valley of the shadow of death, we must live by faith or we will shake like trees in a tempest. We must... Faith is a stabilizing power that affects the whole of our life. We must live by faith, or we will shake like trees in a tempest. And listen, what you need to see in this text here is God Himself God Himself is eager to strengthen our faith in Him. God Himself stands eager to strengthen our faith. This is what happens in verses 10 and 11. God graciously draws near to the troubled soul of Ahaz. He graciously draws near to this troubled soul. And He does so because He is eager to strengthen weak faith. To strengthen waning faith. So God tells Ahaz to ask for any sign to confirm his promise. Any sign, he says, as deep as death or as high as heaven. And listen, there are times in history, we we see this throughout Scripture, there are times in history when God proves his power and his truth through signs and, 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 and miracles, signs and wonders. He does this again and again throughout Scripture, but this is the only time I'm aware of where God gives someone a blank check. Where God says, ask me whatever you want. To prove my, my faithfulness. Ask me whatever you want to prove the truth of my word. My problem. Ask me whatever you will for the sake of your faith. But then, incredible, you know, with this incredible offer, this incredible Ahaz refuses it. In verse 12. He says, He oh, I wouldn't want to put God to the test. You know, sometimes you know, sometimes people faint, you know, sometimes piety hides unbelief. Right? Fain piety. Oh, I wouldn't want to put God to the test. To which we should say, well, it's not putting God to the test if He invites you to it. That's not testing God. That's taking Him at His word. So he, But He doesn't want to do it. And yet, the, fa- the thing to notice here, the thing to notice is how willing God is to strengthen our faith, even in our moment of greatest unbelief. I mean, just marvel at the graciousness of our God. Who comes to Ahaz in his stubborn unbelief, and first says, "Ask for ask for anything you want, and I will prove my trustworthiness to you." For the sake of it, I will prove this to you, brothers and sisters. Let us praise God that He draws near to help us, even when our faith is faltering. We are we are so weak in faith, so frail, and we are we are more like Ahaz than we would like to admit. You know, we are, we are more like, we, we all like say, well, I'm saved and I'm no longer like, you know, I once was an Ahaz, but now I'm not. You know, I once was blind and now I see. And as your pastor, I would come along and say, I'd say, you're more like Ahaz than you realize. Uh, and you would say, funny, you too. Right, exactly. Like, we are all more like Ahaz than we would like to admit. We have weak faith, waning faith. And we need to see how God wants to come along in, in these kinds of moments, these moments of severest trials and temptation that God in his loving kindness draws near to us for the purpose of lifting us up, for the purpose of strengthening our faith. Notice that God does not demand that we take an irrational leap of faith, right? God does not come up to Ahaz and say, come on, man, just trust me. Come on, just trust me with this. No, God acts, God commits himself, and then he does it. He acts in history to feed our faith with, so that we can feed our faith on what he has done. He doesn't just say, you know, trust me, I'm God. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? I mean, where else, where is he going to go? I mean, you might as well trust me. He doesn't just say, trust me blindly. God acts in history to give us evidence that we can feed, that, you know, that proves his, faith, his faithfulness. That we can hang our faith upon. Here's the problem. The problem is not that we don't have reason to trust God. The problem is not that we don't have reason to trust God. The problem is we don't want to trust God. The problem is we don't want, we don't want to trust God. Often God wants to encourage you, God wants to strengthen your faith. But the reason, it, the reason it doesn't work, the reason your faith remains weak, the reason your faith is not encouraged, the reason it's not made firm and it's still shaking, is because you don't want to be encouraged by God. You don't want to be encouraged by God. To which you might say, you know, how dare you? How, 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 you don't know me. You don't know my heart. I do too want to be encouraged by God. To which I would say, yes, but not on His terms. Not on His terms. You want to be encouraged by God on your terms. You want to be encouraged by God on your terms, which is what? For the trial to just go away. For the temptation to leave you. For the problem to be solved. We want our problems to just go away, but God wants to strengthen our faith, our trust in Him, with a sign. He wants to strengthen our faith with a sign. That's what he does for Ahaz in verses 14 through 17. It's a sign to benefit his faith. And since it's repeated in Matthew 1, 23 and fulfilled by Jesus, then it is also a sign, the virgin birth of Jesus is also a sign for our faith as well. This Christmas, God is drawing near to you. God is drawing near to you. He's drawing near to strengthen your faith. And so, you know, my Christmas card to you My Christmas card to you has a picture of, of, you know, me and my family smiling, you know, but instead of saying, you know, Merry Christmas, you know, unto us a child, mine says, season's greetings, don't be like Ahaz, okay, don't be like Ahaz, who refused God's help. No, thanks. Not going to take you up on that, God. That's not... Nope. So God says, listen, you won't take a sign for the sake of your faith. Fine, I'll give you one anyway. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel the Lord himself provides a sign and this this get to be encouraged by this this is after Isaiah has already said that Ahaz has wearied the Lord Ahaz man you are you are you are trying my patience I am wearied by your unbelief and yet God's response is a promise of salvation He responds with I'll send you Emmanuel this will be a sign as high as, dear saint, is your faith waning? Do you feel like you have you have wearied God with your eyes? This has gone on for so long and you're just wearying God because you keep doubting Him and you keep doubting Him. Yeah. Well, God would come to you and say, I have given you a sign. It is as high as heaven. For heaven has come down to earth in my son. And it is as deep as death. For he has suffered in your place. He has died that you might live. This will be a sign. I have given you a sign to secure your faith. Forever. This will be a sign greater than you could ask or imagine. It is the most glorious sign you could ever be given. It is the birth of Emmanuel. It is God with us. It is the Savior come for you. It is the arrival of the God-man. Isaiah 9 tells us more about this son. He tells us about this Savior. And we're going to study it next week in our Christmas Eve service, so I'll try not to launch off here, but, but he calls it, what is his name? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is your Savior. This is your God with you. This is Emmanuel. And that He is God with you means that He is, He is God for you. He is your help. He is your refuge. He is your guide. He is your power. He is your sacrifice. He is your substitute. He is your righteousness. He is your eternal life for the strengthening of your faith. You don't need a new sign from God. You need that old, old sign. You need that Christmas sign. You need that picture of the virgin-born Son, our God with us. And there's nothing better than Him. There's nothing better God can give you than that sign. There's nothing better than He can give you than the birth of His own Son to a virgin. Listen, we have nothing better than Jesus We have nothing better than the gift of... Listen, you know what God does? You know what God does? He turns virgins to mothers. God turns virgins into mothers. He turns mourning into dancing. He turns graves into gardens. He turns shame into glory. And like the song says, he's the only one that can. He is the only one that can. So do you believe this? Do is is this what you are holding your faith onto today. Not getting out of the trial, not escaping the temptation, but getting through it with your God. Firm faith held by the sign of the virgin birth. That God is with you. The sign is Emmanuel. That he is with you and because of Jesus, he is for you. He is for you all of the way. He has given His Son to show you the depth of his, his foreness for you, how much He is for you, and Jesus' promised upon His resurrection that He will not ever leave you or forsake you. He will be with you to the end of the age. God is with you. He is with you. He is for you. And this is the ultimate reason for your faith to be firm. Because God is with you, because He's with you, you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13:6 Or as Isaiah 43 says and this is God speaking when you pass through the waters are you passing through deep waters right now when you pass through the waters i will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you for i am the lord your god the holy one of israel your savior Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This Christmas, as you contemplate the virgin birth of your Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, let that sign create within your heart a firm faith. God has done it. And surely He will do it again. In conclusion, in conclusion, I I just want to give you this little Christmas resolve, if I can call it that, from Isaiah 8. Just just a little later in this, this prophecy. In Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13, the Lord speaks to Isaiah and He says to him, There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of troubles going on in your day, Israel. Warring nations. Things are happening. There's upheaval. Jerusalem could be sacked. He says, "Do Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. We need to hear this fresh today. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And then Isaiah responds in verse 17 with a resolve every Christian should make in difficult times. So this is our our Christmas resolution, friends. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope. In him. Are you in trial? Are you in temptation? Are you traversing through the valley? I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in him. And the sign is a virgin shall give birth to a son. The Lord is our refuge. He is our savior. And he is with us. So we will not fear what others fear. We will not we will not be afraid when others are afraid but we will be strong and we will be courageous in our God for he is with us for he is with us and he will keep us until the end Let's pray Father in heaven There's a song that says, you are a sure and mighty tempest. Or not tempest. <laughs> You're sure and mighty in the tempest. You're sure and mighty in the tempest, Lord. You are a rock. You are our solid ground. I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that you condescend to work with frail humanity so that you work in history to give us signs, to give us strength for our faith to feed our faith. We don't need to look for you to do new things, though you do do new things, but all our faith can hang on what you have done in Jesus Christ, your Son. As we said, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So we thank you for the sign of the Virgin giving birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, the Son of God. We thank you for this sign, and we pray that we would feast upon it this Christmas. Let it nourish our faith and strengthen it that we might walk with our God. For you walk with us. Thank you as well for the picture here, this clear picture of you being a gracious God who comes to us in our severest trials, who comes alongside us in our moments of greatest unbelief, and you work to strengthen our faith. Where we cannot, you put yourself on the line, and you say, look, I have done it all for you. I've already done it all for you. Just look and trust me. We set our faces on Jesus Christ, We run this race with our eyes set on Jesus Christ, and we will finish when we are with Jesus Christ in the fullness. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.